Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Mr. Chief Justice, please the court. Here's your recovery. What? No deal? This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Bounty hunters are kind of like human bloodhounds. They're dogged. They won't stop until they get who they're looking for. Frank Abramovitz is a bounty hunter. He owns something called a Fugitive Recovery Agency in Manchester, New Hampshire. Reporter Khalila Holt joined him on the trail. I'm an old man, remember? <clears throat> Investigations. If you see him, grab him. You just grab the son of a bee, you know. Hey, you gotta take him down, whatever way you gotta shoot. Just don't shoot him. Yeah, I know. I'm being nice. Don't shoot him, please. All right. All right, let me go back because I got the young lady that uh, was us talking. I'm that young lady. When I first meet Frank, he's wearing a leather Harley Davidson hat and jeans that are a little too short. He has bright blue eyes and a gold hoop in his ear. He's 75 years old, and he's the first bounty hunter I've ever met. They called me the bear, because I put a couple of guys through a door one night, and after that, everybody called me the bear. I'll give you a shirt off my back. Play games with me, I turn to be like a rattlesnake. I will bury you. I've buried many a guy in this business. Before Frank, the only bounty hunter I'd ever heard of was that guy Dog with his own TV show. But Frank says Dog's a jackass and a phony. Frank has a lot of strong opinions. So first, a little background on bounty hunting. Bounty hunters like Frank get cases from a bondsman. They try to find fugitives who have jumped bail. They often work with the police. But once he's on a case, Frank can actually do a lot of stuff the police can't do. So, you know, we don't have to read you your rights. I can go into church and take you out. If you're in the synagogue, I can take you out. You have no rights. I don't, I can kick your doors in at one, two, three o'clock in the morning. The other guy talking there is Mark. Nickname Warrior. I was a pro MMA fighter here in New Hampshire. I'm supposed to be here for a sit-down interview with Frank, but instead I end up following Frank, Mark, and three other agents around until five in the morning. We're looking for some guy named Neil. Neil's wanted for criminal threatening and disorderly conduct. A lot of fugitives list false addresses on their paperwork, which means bounty hunters do a lot of snooping around. 
They talk to prostitutes, hit up corner stores, question barbers. They look for the fugitives' friends and family. But Frank says they often find more information online. Believe it or not, a lot of people don't realize it. They give a lot of their personal information out on websites. You'd be surprised how many go out there. MySpace, uh, Facebook, uh, Twinka, all those, Twitter, all those. Even though many of those websites do not exist, the agents don't half-ass it when it comes to combing the internet. I watch Frank click through everything Neil's ever posted on Facebook. Spending the night with my two favorite women, Ma and Jen. See, Ma, Jen has got to be staying with Ma, because he's uh, everything you look at, he's always with Jen and Ma. Once they have a good idea of where someone might be, the agents stake out the house. We spend a lot of time watching curtains twitch and wondering if it might mean anything. After a while, we raid the building. Here's your recovery. What? You know deal? That often means searching the place. I don't care if you hide in the ceiling, we're gonna find you. We pull them out of washing machines. We pull them out from underneath closets. We pull the guy out of uh, Hudson, New Hampshire, out of a chimney. In between a bed. <laughs> yep, we pull them out of the in-between bed. Frank says they don't mind showing up on holidays, even arresting people during Christmas dinner. He once arrested a fugitive during the guy's own wedding. But despite all this effort, the business isn't that profitable. According to Frank, bounty hunters only make 10% of the fugitive's bail. On Neil's case, for example, their cut is $80. For five agents, that's about $16 a piece. And I watched them track this guy for over 15 hours. Per person, it pans out to about a dollar an hour. And that's not even counting all the money we spend on coffee. So if it's not the money, why are the agents putting all this time into searching criminals' bedrooms? Over and over again, I get the same answer. To keep people safe. You're off the road, you're going to jail, see you later. I want to scare the shit out of you because I don't want you doing it again. That's Jeff. He's at work even though he has some broken ribs right now. I keep asking the agents if they ever feel bad for the people they're hunting. Because you end up learning all sorts of intimate details about these people in bad situations. I know that Neil loves rap music. I know his mom rolls her own cigarettes and watches cops. I know that his girlfriend has struggled with drug addiction, that she worked as a prostitute. And the agents agree that not all the fugitives are bad people. Some of them even send Frank Christmas cards after they've been arrested. But none of the agents feel guilty. Do you ever feel bad for people who are in that kind of situation, but they're that desperate? Not really. We did at the beginning. After the second or third arrest, you don't. Because you hear the same story. I've got a list here. I can give you a copy of it. The 10 reasons people give you why they don't show up in court. So is it that you don't believe them anymore? Or you just we sort don't of believe like... them anymore. We know, we know the routine. At the beginning, it's not easy. Yeah, But when you do so many of them, it, it becomes... Party. You know, they're crying, they're doing this and that, you just... It doesn't phase you. Yeah. Rob is the newest member of the team. He's the only one who says he hasn't hit that point yet. Here he is talking about his first arrest. The adrenaline was nice and everything. And I actually kind of felt bad because when we went in, there was little kids there. And I was like apologetic about how we came in, how we're walking in front of the little kid and she wasn't understanding. So it's hard. For me. And it's even harder because Rob grew up here in Manchester. I do know a lot of people. And when I walk in, I know the people that live in the apartment that know the kid we're going after. Have you had to arrest someone that's your friend before then? Uh, I haven't yet. But I mean, 
the friends that I've had throughout my past and growing up, I'm sure it's bound to happen eventually. So he has some doubts, but even though some parts are hard, when we're on the stakeout, Rob says he already thinks of the other agents like a family. At the end of the day, Rob goes back home to his kids. But Frank often stays at the office, just sleeps on the couch by his desk. His family's mostly gone now. Before he took on fugitive recovery, Frank was a cop. So he has a history with, as he puts it, taking the scum off the streets. But Frank's commitment to the business is about more than catching criminals. For 22 years, Frank was married to a woman named Athena. Here are some things that happened in that time. They threw huge parties, ate a lot of Greek food, rode around on Frank's motorcycle. Athena regularly called Frank on his bullshit. Frank decided Athena was the love of his life. She owned the beauty shop. And then she just got sick of it. She got a bad infection on her hands from some toxic hair dye. She was tired of doing dead people's hair for funerals. So she decided to get into the bounty hunting business. One day she just said, I want to open a detective agency. I never questioned her. But in 1983, Athena's doctor called Frank into his office and offered him a drink. He said he didn't want a drink. He said, what's wrong with my wife? The doctor told him Athena had ovarian cancer. She died a year later. Frank couldn't let Athena's business die too. And that's why he became a bounty hunter. After his wife, Frank lost a daughter. She died at 21 years old, major heart attack. I never knew she had a bad heart. He has two other kids, but he doesn't really talk to them. He says they don't need him anymore now that they have money. Most of what's important to Frank comes back to the office. He still thinks of it as his wife's business. He calls Jeff his adopted son. Hey, there comes my adopted son now. I call my adopted son Jeff. I say, oh, that's only my adopted son. How long do you think you'll keep doing this? Until the day I die. The day I quit is the day I'm going to die. The agents do eventually catch Neil, the guy we've been looking for, but not till a couple days later, after I'm already gone. The day I visit, the team goes home sleepy and empty-handed. I drive home at sunrise. It's all very poetic. I'm tempted to make some grand statement here. Something about a man who lost everyone important to him and now spends all his time looking for strangers. But maybe that's not it at all. Maybe it is just about making the streets safer or hanging out with people you think are fun. Maybe the only lesson here is that you shouldn't jump bail in the state of New Hampshire. Here's Jeff. We don't stop, that's the problem. We're going after you. We're going to your parents' house. We're going to your girlfriend's house. We're going, we're looking for you everywhere. You don't want to be messing with us because we'll get you. <laughs> we always do. <laughs> for Life of the Law, I'm Kalila Holt. And I'm Nancy Mullane. In just a minute, we're going to talk about people who have been caught and have been sentenced to the ultimate penalty, coming up in just a minute.
One day in 2012, I was given exclusive press access to California's death row, where more than 700 men live inside three separate cell blocks. I was allowed to speak with and interview any inmate who wanted to talk. For six hours, more than two dozen men described their lives on death row. You have nice pictures. I like the color. Okay, thank you. It's the same. It's kind of like a teal, like a soft teal. Uh, I call it blue. Yeah, nice soft. (laughs) And your name again? Uh, William Dennis. How long have you been here? Uh, Almost 17 years in North Sag. And before that? I was seven years in East Block. What don't people know about living on death row that you could tell them? Um, it's more boring than, than, than anything else because uh, you really can't uh, you know, do a whole lot. Um, and it's very isolated. And that's pretty much, you know, uh, pretty much it. After I left San Quentin's death row that day, William, Dennis, and I kept in touch. In fact, he wrote letters and called several times to share updates on his appeals and on the conditions on the row. On a recent call, I asked Dennis about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to hear oral arguments on whether or not executing people through lethal injection was a violation of the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Well, I I can tell you that before when I was thinking that I might uh, go to the gas chamber, lethal injection sounded like a more humane method of, uh, of execution, that I never thought there would be uh, as much problem for uh, the states to, you know, get the, the, the drugs that, that they need. I didn't think they would botch it up like they have. Uh, one of the few things I do remember, and it seemed like it was right around 1992 when we were given a choice, and as I recall, everybody was given a paper sign which method they would prefer, either being used a gas chamber or uh, lethal injection. But uh, other than that, I can't really think of anybody really explaining anything. Did that come with yeah. like a just like a, a piece of paper explaining what those choices would actually mean? No, no. It was just a uh, you know little quarter sheet piece of paper for you to check off one or the other your signature. Uh, I remember checking uh, the injection. Would you change your decision now, or would you keep the same decision? I don't think I would change my decision, because uh, it seems to me that uh, that the gas uh, is still worse than lethal injection. And yet you had that, that moment when you had surgery recently where they put you on a gurney. Um, it was a very telling moment because I was I, uncontrollably, I was shaking, uh, being nervous. And even though I knew I wasn't being uh, executed, that being in the same spot, I was thinking this is the same environment that I would be in and it would be very much like this. And uh, yes, it was uh, very nerve-wracking, to say the least. Would you be surprised, then, if the U.S. Supreme Court said that using lethal injection as a death execution method was uh, was unconstitutional? The idea that they would, you know, say that lethal injection is unconstitutional, but will go back to, you know, hanging or being shot or something, uh, it's kind of hard to, you know, uh, believe that's going to happen. 
that, uh, you know, I don't know uh, what they're really going to uh, finally come up with. I was speaking with William Dennis on a recorded phone call from San Quentin State Prison's death row. Dennis was sentenced to death in 1988 for the 1984 murders of his ex-wife and her unborn child. For the past 16 years, Dennis has been appealing his death sentence to U.S. Federal District Court. The U.S. Supreme Court did issue their ruling on execution by lethal injection. In a deeply divided 5-4 decision, the court found that lethal injection is constitutional. Rory Little is a professor of law at UC Hastings. Well, I think the skirmishing about how we execute really is skirmishing because if they were to strike down all chemicals, the states could then go to firing squad or hanging or gas chamber or electrocution, all of which have been upheld in the past by the Supreme Court as not cruel and unusual. Um, And some of the states already had in place legislation that said if lethal injection is struck down, we're going to go to firing squad or we're going to go to some other method. Uh, So the real deep question is, are we going to have it or not? Are we going to have capital punishment? There's a second part of today's opinion, which is quite interesting. Apparently, Justice Alito says that for an inmate to have standing to challenge a method of execution, they have to propose a constitutional way of being executed. In other words, they can't just attack the way they're going to be executed. They have to propose something that would work. Uh, I just that's crazy. It's never been said before. And I just think it's wrong. I mean, if some state said we're going to execute people by, you know, drawing and quartering them and dragging them behind a ship in a keel hall, I think the court would say, no, that's unconstitutional. And it wouldn't matter whether the prisoner volunteered something else. Well, and even Justice Scalia once wrote that he was a weak-kneed textualist because he didn't think he could approve uh, keel hauling. So... Congratulations. It's dragging somebody behind your boat until they drown. The framers used to use it. Not the framers, but the people at that time. And then Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg today, quite surprisingly, announced that they are now persuaded that the death penalty is unconstitutional in all contexts. That is, they are stating the same position that Justices Brennan and Marshall took some 30 years ago. Uh, And there are four death penalty cases on the docket of the Supreme Court for the fall. So the pressure now on Justice Kennedy, who's the fifth vote on this, we think, uh, is pretty huge. We haven't seen many executions this year across the country compared to prior years. Of course, we've seen none in California for many years. Uh, I think many people believe it is on the wane. Um, Will it be abolished judicially? Will it be abolished legislatively because we can't afford it? Open, open question. That was Rory Little, professor of law at UC Hastings. This episode of Life of the Law was reported by Khalil LaHolt and was edited by Annie Murphy, her instructor at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies, and by Life of the Law's Ashley Cleek. Michael May was our managing editor. We wish him such good luck at NPR. Caitlin Prest is our senior producer, and she designed the sound and produced the story with assistance from Jonathan Hirsch. Howard Gelman of KQED was our engineer. Life of the Law is a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Infinite Guest Network of Podcasts from American Public Media. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We're funded by the Open Society Foundation, the National Science Foundation, the Law and Society Association, and the Proteus Fund. 
If you'd like to make a much appreciated donation to help cover the direct cost of production, you can find a donate button at the top of our website. It just takes a minute. Next week on our sister podcast, Live Law. My third grade teacher didn't allow us to use the adjective nice because she felt it didn't tell the whole story. And after this whole regrettable debacle, I'm convinced that nice is the gateway adjective. That's next week on Live Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos. Let's do this. As we. 